Well, take your Bibles, if you have closed them, and turn back to Exodus chapter 25. We're not going to be spending our whole time together in Exodus 25. It's, uh, I don't normally like to do what I would always think of as a diving board or a launch point in a message, uh, but that's sort of what Exodus 25 is for us. Uh, and let me tell you exactly why. A number of years ago, in our Bible study on Wednesday nights, we were going through Exodus and going through the tabernacle. And as we were going through, I always welcomed questions, and someone asked me why God chose to have almonds on the lampstand. Why almonds? And I had no answer. I had no answer to give, but as I always try to tell people, I will look it up for you. I'll try and do some research. And so my curiosity was spiked as to why God would choose almonds. Because if you, if you studied the, the tabernacle, you recognize that there are not any symbols in that way in the tabernacle besides the almonds on the lampstand and the cherubim. You have the cherubim over the, the Ark of the Covenant, and you have the cherubim woven into the fabric. And those are all pointing to worship God, but the almond isn't pointing to worship God in the way that the cherubim is. So why would God choose the almond? He could have chosen a cashew. He could have chosen a peanut. He could have chosen anything he wanted to or chosen to have nothing, as he did with the table of showbread and as he did with the uh, altar of incense and, and other things. He could have left it just one beaten work of gold without the additions of the almonds. And so my curiosity was piqued. It was something, you know, curiosity killed the cat, they say. I don't know what cat they're talking about, but the, my curiosity was piqued, and when it comes to the Word of God, that's a good thing, to have your curiosity uh, in, uh, growing and, and wanting to find something out. And so I started to look through as many commentaries as I could find on Exodus 25, on the lampstand, as to why God chose to use almonds. And I couldn't find anything. There's not a single commentary that I came across. That doesn't mean no one else has said anything about it. But there wasn't anything that I could find that said anything about the almond. And I thought, well, that's curious. Wouldn't somebody have said something about why God chose the almond? Wasn't somebody else's curiosity uh, fired up at some point? And so I thought, well, uh, I'm not sure what else to do. So I did a word search on almonds. And most of the time, actually I think all of the time, the word almond is used in the Old Testament. And it's not the only time that it's used is in Exodus. It's, so it's used with the lampstand, but it's used in other places as well. And you may have some of these places uh, jumping into your mind. Uh, maybe not, but possibly. The next place that almond is used is in Numbers. In Numbers 16 and 17. I'm not going to read chapter 16 for us because that's, uh, it's a bit longer, uh, chapter 16 is, but it's laying the groundwork for what happens in chapter 17. In number 16, we have the rebellion of Korah, uh, if that rings a bell to you. So Korah was a Levite. Uh, he thought that Moses and Aaron, Aaron especially, had taken too much authority upon themselves, had taken too much authority when it came to the worship of God at the tabernacle. And Korah led others with him to think that everybody should just have equal measure when it came to the tabernacle. And so Korah led a rebellion, if you will. 
And they wanted to have that same equality that Aaron had, that same opportunity to worship God and perform the different rites around the brazen altar, at the altar of incense, and even going into the Holy of Holies. God was not well pleased with this situation. And God came down in judgment upon Korah and upon those that had dissembled with him. And Korah and and those others were actually swallowed up by a crack in the earth. And then the crack closed upon them. And you thought, well, that's the end of the story, right? That's the end of the matter. Uh, Well, unfortunately, all Israel was upset, not with Korah, but with Moses and with Aaron and with God. They felt it was not righteous of God to do that to Korah, even though God had previously stated that the high priest is the only one that can go into the Holy of Holies and that the priesthood is the only ones that could go into the holy place and the priesthood are the only ones who can perform the sacrifices, but they didn't accept God's word. And so they continued to be upset. And that's what we find in Numbers chapter 17. And they say, well, shouldn't we, shouldn't others have the same privilege? And so God speaks to Moses in verse verse 1 of number 17. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and take of every one of them a rod according to the house of their fathers, of all their princes according to the house of their fathers twelve rods. Write thou every man's name upon his rod, and thou shalt write Aaron's name upon the rod of Levi. For one rod shall be for the head of the house of their fathers. And thou shalt lay them up in the tabernacle of the congregation before the testimony, where I will meet with you. And it shall come to pass that the man's rod, whom I shall choose, shall blossom. And I will make to to cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel, whereby they murmur against you. And Moses spake unto the children of Israel, and every one of their princes gave him a rod apiece. For each prince one, according to their father's houses, even twelve rods. And the rod of Aaron was among their rods. Moses laid up the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. And it came to pass that on the morrow, Moses went into the tabernacle of witness. And behold, the rod of Aaron for the house of Levi was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and yielded almonds. And Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord under the children of Israel, and they looked and took every man his rod. And the Lord said unto Moses, Bring Aaron's rod again before the testimony, to be kept for a token against the rebels. And thou shalt quite take away their murmurings from me, that they die not. And Moses did so. As the Lord commanded him, so did he. And the children of Israel spake unto Moses, saying, Behold, we die, we perish, we all perish. Whosoever cometh anything near unto the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Shall we be consumed with dying? That's not the end of the story. And if you want to find out more about that particular story, you can certainly read into Numbers chapter 18. The focus, though, is on Aaron's rod that budded. We always, I've always heard it said that way. Aaron's rod that budded, because it's a miracle that the rod budded. But it didn't just bud, as you notice from the text. It blossomed and it gave almonds. Now, we don't know, we're not told anywhere in the narrative or anywhere else in Scripture whether Aaron's rod was an almond rod or not. We don't know if that's what it was before it went there, and that's why it budded almonds. I have a feeling, uh, this is just a thought, that that's not the case, or that God had had him choose a rod that was an almond rod. 
But it's almonds again. And so for the second time, something is taken into the tabernacle and is actually now placed into the Ark of the Covenant that is bearing almonds. And you say, well, there has to be something about that in the commentaries. Somebody had to have thought about this and, find, and, to, and searched out why God chose almonds again. And so I searched. I searched and I came up just as empty as I did in Exodus 25. There was nothing about the almonds. And so what do I do? Well, you continue on. You continue on as to find out why. Well, the next time that almonds are mentioned is in Jeremiah chapter 1. So if you would like to turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah was chosen as a prophet by God as a youngster. We don't know, I don't know exactly what age. I haven't uh, studied Jeremiah in quite some time. But he was chosen very young. And God said, Jeremiah, you're going to preach for me and the people aren't going to listen. And you're going to continue to preach for me and they're still not going to listen. And it's going to be decades. It's going to be 40 years of them not listening. And then I'm going to judge them because they don't listen to what you have to say. And in the process of God saying this to Jeremiah, in verse, one, verse 11 of chapter 1, he says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten to perform, I will hasten my word to perform it. And then the Lord asked him to see what he sees the next time, and it's a seething pot. And you say, well, that's not a lot about almonds there, is it? No, it's not, but it actually gives us a lot of information. It gives us more information about the almond than it does in Exodus or in Numbers. Because what the Lord says, you've seen well, Jeremiah, because I'm going to hasten my word to perform it. So there's a connection between the almond, the almond rod that Jeremiah sees, and God hastening his word to perform it. So let's think about something for a moment. What's the, the word for almond in, in Hebrew? I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not claiming to be. And I'm not going to tell you what the actual word is because I would probably mispronounce it. But the word almond in Hebrew actually forms the root of two different Hebrew words. Those two different Hebrew words, the first one is to shake. And throughout the book of, of Jeremiah, that word is used frequently because God is going to shake Jerusalem. He's going to shake Judah because of its sin. And you can sort of see why the word shake comes from the word almond, because what do you do to get almonds from a tree? You actually shake it. You shake the almond tree. You don't go along and try and pluck the almonds off. You just shake the tree. And those nuts that are ready to come off, that are ready to be eaten, will actually fall out of the tree. Those that are not ready will not fall out. And so you shake the tree. And you can understand then why the word almond and the word shake are closely related in Hebrew. But that's not the only word that's closely related. The second word that's closely related is to watch. Now, the Hebrew word to watch doesn't mean what we frequently think of to watch. When, we think, when I think of the word watch, I think of sitting down and watching something and not taking part. I'm watching something else take place. A lot of Americans last night sat down and watched fireworks in the air. A lot of people last night in Britain sat down and watched the football match. You just sat and you watched. You didn't actually take part. The outcome wasn't dependent upon you. That's not what the word watch in Hebrew means. 
In Hebrew, the word watch means that I'm going to actually have an, a vested interest and I am going to be doing things to make sure that what I want accomplished is going to be accomplished. That's what he says, I will hasten my word to perform it. You can translate that, I will watch over my word to perform it. It is God taking an active interest in what's going to happen with Jeremiah and the words that Jeremiah says over Jerusalem and over Judah. Now, that gives us a great insight into the almond and why God used the almond in Exodus and why God used the almond in Numbers. Because doing some more research, it would always, if you're thinking about Jewish culture, it would always do well to actually find out what the Jews thought in that culture, in that time frame. And so doing some more research, I found out that in Israel, the rite of spring, like in Harrogate, the rite of spring is when you see the crocuses and the, and the snowdrops coming up from the ground. You think spring is coming. It might be very, very cold. There might be snow on the ground. But you know spring is upon us because these little flowers are coming up through the ground or through even the snow. In Israel, that's the almond tree. The almond tree is the first tree to bud in Israel. It's the first tree to blossom. And in modern Israel, they actually have a week-long festival every year called the Almond Festival because they are welcoming in spring. It is the beginning of new life, if you will. In fact, the Jews actually, a large contingent of Jews actually believe that the tree of life in the Garden of Eden was an almond tree. Where they get that information, I don't know. <laughs> you can take that for what you want. But there is this idea that the almond is the beginning. Now, that's not the end of it, because the almond is also the very last tree to be harvested in Israel. So it's the first tree to bud, and it's the last tree to harvest. So you see it in the beginning of spring, and you think, spring is here. And then you're waiting, and you're watching, and you're saying, oh, boy, those almonds would taste great, wouldn't they? But you can't have them yet. Because you have to wait all summer long into August when that tree finally is ready to bear its fruit, readily, ready to release its fruit, the almond. It's the first and it's the last. It's the first of spring and the last tree to harvest. That is God watching over his word to perform it. Because you have to keep the pests away. You have to keep the birds away from the almonds. You have to keep the bugs away from the almonds. You, you can't just let it be. You've got to watch over it. You've got to maintain it throughout the summer to make sure that you're going to get those nuts. And suddenly, we recognize that God, through the almond, is watching over his word to perform it from beginning to end, from first to last. The, the lampstand is telling us that, that Christ is the light of the world. He is the one who lights the world in the beginning, and he is the end as well. That all, and that all that happens in between, every single life that is enlightened by the word of God is enlightened by what? Him. By Jesus Christ, by the Father, by God alone. You didn't learn of God on your own. You learned of God from him. All that are taught of God are taught by the Father. He performs the task. It's why it's so shocking when Aaron's rod buds, and we always say Aaron's rod that buds. 
But it's not just a rod that budded. It's a rod that bloomed. And it's a rod that gave almonds overnight. And it was telling Israel, he said, look, I've already performed my word. I declared it in the beginning. I started it. I said, Aaron's going to be the one that's going to be my high priest. And I've already performed it. My word is as good as done. And there is nothing you can do to change it. This is the way it is. And the almond sealed that. It's the, it's the beginning, but it's also the last. Right there, overnight, in one rod. And telling Israel, don't try and do anything else because the, the, the almond is already here. It's already finished. There's nothing you can do to change what I've started. And when we think about that, it is God saying to Israel, when I begin something, I'm going to perform it. I'm going to watch over it. And I'm going to make sure that exactly what I want to have happen will happen. It should give us some clues about who God is. And it should give us an idea about the continuity of Scripture. So we're going to talk about in a moment the idea of one of the names of God. What Jesus says of himself. He says, I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end, the first and the last. But you see, we think of that, and we think of it in Revelation where he says that, and you think, wow, that's amazing, what a revelation. Well, that's not the first time God used those words about himself. He does that in Isaiah. He does it in Isaiah 41. He says, keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings. He gave them as the dust to his sword, and has driven stubble to his bow. He pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Jehovah, the first, and with the last, I am he. It's not the only time in Isaiah he says it. He says it in chapter 44. He says, yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant in Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus saith Jehovah that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass, as willows by the watercourses. One shall say, I am Jehovah's, and another shall call himself by the name of Jacob, and another shall subscribe with his hand unto Jehovah, and surname himself by the name of Israel. Thus saith Jehovah, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Jehovah of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. It's a, amazing how many times in, in Isaiah that Isaiah speaks of God as our Redeemer, and he says here, I'm going, to, I'm going to pour my spirit upon thy seed. That sounds like the new covenant in Jeremiah, doesn't it? And he says, guess who's going to perform it? The same one who started it. I chose you from the beginning. I'm the one who's going to watch over it, and I'm going to perform it. I'm going to pour forth my spirit upon you. I'm going to place my word in your heart. That's the work of God. That's not the work of me. It's not the work of man. In Isaiah 48, for my name's sake will I defer my anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. 
I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it. For how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I also am the last. Here he's talking to to those that trust him. And he's saying, look, I'm refining you. But not like silver. I'm chastening you with affliction. We've been studying Hebrews chapter 12 in the chastening of God's hand in in verses 5 through 11 for now uh, six weeks. And you see that that the affliction that God brings in chastening is what? For our good. Why? Because God's going to accomplish a purpose with it. Too often when something comes along, we say, oh, Lord, take it away. I don't want the pain. I don't want the difficulty. I don't want the trouble. I don't want the tribulation. But God says, no, I'm accomplishing something through these things. That's what he says here in Isaiah. It's about chastisement. It could be about other things where he's increasing your faith, increasing your walk with him, making you more of a reflection of Jesus Christ to the people around you. What does he say? I'm the one that's going to perform it, whether it's chastisement or any other thing. And I've got a purpose for it. And it's not going to stop until I'm done. Not until you're done with it, until I'm done with it. I'm going to continue because I'm going to bring my purpose about. I'm going to perform what it is I've started. Why? Because he's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the end. Jesus says in Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega. How is that any different than the Almond? He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He says... I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. It is something that we need to think about. We we hear he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and we think, well, that's great. And we just think about, as, as is our mind, at least my mind, it's the beginning and it's the end. What about the stuff in the middle? Well, he's still watching over to perform. That's what he's doing. That's what he's promising. He's not saying I'm the, I'm the very first letter and I'm the very last letter and I'm not the stuff in between. He's saying he's the beginning all the way through to the end. He's the one that accomplishes his purposes. Well, he's saying the same thing in the almond. Revelation 22, he says, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. And I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Why does he say it so many times? Because, at least for me, I'm a bit what they call in the U.S. thick-headed. I'm a bit slow on the uptake. I don't get it as quickly as I ought to get it. And so when things happen in my life, when, when trials come or tribulation comes or persecution comes or chastisement comes... I'm slow on the uptake. And I don't recognize that God is performing something in my life by what he's doing. And that, in fact, that is him showing me that he loves me, that he cares for me, that he is not leaving me where I was, but he's bringing me to where he wants me to be. And it's the refining of affliction that does that. 
that performs the task. Because when I'm weak, that's when he's strong. But too often when we're weak, just take it away. I don't want the weakness. I want the strength. I want to be able to do the things that I always think I can do. And the Lord says, that's not the way it works. I'm the one that's performing anything. If I'm going to use you, then it's me using you, not you using you. I'm the one that performs the task. I could do it all in my own strength, and what will it, what will it accomplish? Absolutely nothing. I can, be, I can be the weakest individual possible because of the, the crucible of affliction, and God says, I'm going to make you strong. I'm going to use you to great effect. Why? Because that's his purpose. And that's what he's constantly telling us over and over again. It is my purpose that I'm accomplishing. It is my work that I'm doing. And that's the picture of the almond. He's going to watch over it from the beginning all the way through to the end. It's not just the first and the last. It's everything in between. Well, there are different ways of saying this, aren't there? Well, Paul says it in Philippians chapter 1. This is why we chose this chapter as our call to worship. We're not going to read all of Philippians chapter 1 or the verses that we read before, but I want to focus in on verse 6. Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If that was in Hebrew, that would be watch. If it was in Hebrew, it might even be homend. Why? Because it's watching over to perform the task. And the direct context of this, what is he talking about? Well, let's think about it. What's the good work? Well, the direct context is redemption. It's our redemption. So if you are sitting here today and you profess Christ, you're a Christian, guess who began the work? God did. He began it. And guess who's performing it? He is. And guess who will complete it? He will. He who began the good work in you will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. So what is the day of Jesus Christ? Well, it's one of two things. It's either his return or your death. Those, that, that's the day of Jesus Christ for you. It, I've been encouraged over the past year and a half because one of the things that God has really impressed upon me is the idea that in my life, I will see Christ. If Christ tarries for a thousand years, you know what? I don't have to wait a thousand years. In my life, I will see Christ, either at his return or at my death. But that's my lifetime. Because as soon as my body is done, I'm with him. It's just as though he returned for me. Just in the opposite sense, he said, okay, it's time for you to come to me. And he will perform it. So I will see the day of Jesus Christ in my life. Whenever that happens to be, whether it's his return tomorrow or a week or a year or 10 years or 20. Or if he continues to tarry, then it's going to be at my death. And that will be just a momentary blip on the horizon of my eternal life with him. But it will be for me the day of Jesus Christ. He will complete my salvation. He will complete my redemption. I will see him face to face and sin for me will be no more. What a day that will be. Whichever day it is. But it's the day of Jesus Christ in my life. 
That's the context of what Paul is talking about. It's our redemption. That's the good work that he started. And our, our redemption is the, the day of Jesus Christ is that final day for us, whichever day it will be. But we can actually apply it even further in our lives. We don't have to stop at redemption, not, to, not sense to thinking that that's a bad thing. But see, God does other things in you, doesn't he? Let's think about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. You see, now, since I'm a believer, God has ordained that I should walk in what? Good works. That there are things that he wants me to do in this life. What, and I'm not saying performing as in some sort of uh, task. But there are things that he is going to accomplish through me. Whether it's through prayer. Whether it's through conversing with other people about him whether it's teaching my children, there are a multitude of ways of good works that God will do in my life and in the life of every single believer. You can apply that to Philippians. You can apply that because Paul is the same author of both letters. He which began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And here in Ephesians, he says, he created you unto good works unto good works, that you should walk in them. So then what does it mean? It, it comes down to the idea that in your life, when God begins a work, he's going to watch over it to perform it. In the day of affliction, the day of chastisement, the day of tribulation, the day of trial, the day of blessing, all the things, it's the, it's the fulfillment of what Paul says in Romans 8.28. God worketh all things together for good. He works, he works it all together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. What's that good? It's not, it's not wealth. It's not money. It's not houses. It's not fame. It's not success in my job. It is my spiritual good. And he's going to use that not just for me, but also in others. That's why it's fruit. Fruit is something that the tree doesn't enjoy, is it? The tree doesn't enjoy the fruit. If I have an apple tree in my garden, the apple tree never gets the benefit of the apple. I get the benefit of the apple, whether I eat the apple, whether I make a pie, whether I do anything else with it, or whether I take the seeds and plant another tree. But the original tree receives no benefit from the fruit. What about our fruit? Well, God gets the glory for our fruit. And what's the benefit for us? Because God gets the glory for our fruit. The fruit is for others. The joy, the, the, the peace, the long-suffering, all those things that Paul talks about, yes, they're wonderful things for us, but they're benefits for other people. Other people get the benefit of our fruits. And guess who's watching over to perform those things? To change you from the, uh, the defiled sinner that you were when he saved you into who you are now. Who gets the glory for that? He does, because he's been watching over to perform it. And everything that he does, if what Paul says in Romans 8 is true, all things work together for our good. If that's true, then there are a bunch of little days of Jesus Christ in your life. There are all these little things that he is doing to accomplish his purpose in you. 
I can't say what those things are. I don't know. But when you study the scriptures, you start to learn what some of those things might be. But he's conforming you to his image. He's changing you. He's molding you and making you. And he's going to be using you, oftentimes when you don't even know it. And he's going to be accomplishing his purpose until the day of Jesus Christ. And when he accomplishes that purpose, that's the day of Christ. That doesn't mean, I'm not talking about the day of, in the future of redemption, when you see him face to face. I'm talking about now, in the moment. When that purpose is fulfilled, that he began that good work in you for, that's the day of Christ. And that's something to rejoice in. That's something to glory in. So if God has brought upon you something, whether it's for chastisement, whether it's for tribulation to increase your faith, whether it's for preventing you, as it was for Paul with the thorn of, in the flesh of, of falling into sin, whatever the purpose is that he accomplishes in you, it should be a day of rejoicing. Because the almond has come true, come through. He's accomplished the purpose for what he set the task. Think about chastisement. It's a wonderful picture. If with my children, when they, were, when they were younger, or even today when they're older, the chastisement changes because of their age. But think, do I continue to chastise them when, they, when I've told them what they've done wrong, and I've chastised them, and they stop doing the wrong? Do I continue? That would be an awful father if he continued, wouldn't it? No, you stop the chastisement. Why? Because you've accomplished the purpose for the chastisement. And so it ends. It's no longer going. Well, when you apply that to our spiritual lives, that is the day of Jesus Christ. Because he has accomplished the good work, his chastisement in you to cease you from the sin. And that's something to rejoice in. It's something to encourage us, encourage us because guess what? We are loved with an everlasting love. From beginning all the way through to the end. There are, there are no gaps. There is nothing that is coming upon you that is not done out of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Everything is. All things work together for your good. It is God's hand upon you. He started the good work and he is watching over it to perform it all the way through to the end. And he will accomplish that purpose. I always think of Jonah. Jonah is a beautiful picture of chastisement. You say, wait a second, I thought it was a beautiful picture of other things. It is, but it's a beautiful picture of chastisement because God says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go my way over to Nineveh. And Jonah says, no, I'm going to go my way over to Tarshish. I don't want to go your way. And God says, Jonah, you're going to go my way. You just don't know it yet. And so Jonah gets on the ship. What does God do? First thing he does is he sends a storm. But Jonah's asleep in the storm. And the sailors, the sailors are, are pulling their hair out. They're, they're throwing everything overboard. And they're, they're worried they're going to die. And they, they look and they say, Jonah's asleep. What's he doing asleep? And they wake him up. And they say, don't you care that we perish? It sounds an awful lot like what happens with the disciples in the boat. And he says, don't you care that we perish? And he says, I know why this is happening. I know why it's happening because God told me to go that way. And I'm going this way. And they said, well, what do we do? And he said, ah, I got the answer for you. Just throw me over. Throw me over the side. That will calm the storm. He doesn't say turn the boat around so I can go God's way. He still wants to go his own way. He says, I'm, not, I'm still not going to Nineveh. I still don't want them to repent and turn to God. 
I still don't want God to be forgiving to them. So just throw me overboard and I'll die. Won't that be great? And so they throw him overboard. But what does God do? He says, the, the, first, the first switch, the first, the, the first cane didn't work, Jonah. So here comes the second cane. Here comes the, the great fish. And notice, Jonah doesn't repent the first day. In the, I mean, how shocking is it that you, if you were sitting there in the belly of a fish thinking, I'm still alive. How is this possible? Clearly, this is something to do with God. Wouldn't you have thought well, that first day is the day of repentance? But for Jonah, it takes three. That's, he's not getting the chastening hand of God. He's not learning the lesson. But God isn't going to stop. He's going to continue on Jonah. And Jonah repents. He could have, if he hadn't, God would have said, okay, it's going to be 50 days. However long it takes, Jonah, I'm going to keep on working on you. And Jonah repents on that day. God causes the fish to spit him out. But has Jonah's heart changed at all? God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah says, okay, I'm going to Nineveh. But he goes grudgingly, doesn't he? He still doesn't have a heart that aligns with God's purposes. He goes to Nineveh. His outward actions seem fine. He preaches. I don't know what his preaching would have sounded like. It certainly wouldn't have been impassioned, would it? He would have been walking along saying, God's going to dis- Jehovah's going to destroy your city in 40 days. Repent. He would have been like, please don't repent. Please don't listen to me. But they do. And Jonah goes outside the city onto a hillside, and he sits there for what? To watch until God destroys Nineveh. That's what he wants to happen. He wants to see God destroy Nineveh. He still hasn't, his heart hasn't changed. He's still not walking the way of God, even though his outward actions look like it. And so God says, I'm not done with you, Jonah. He causes a gourd, a, a plant to grow up, to give him shade. And Wow, this is great. I get really now get to enjoy myself and wait and watch until God destroys them. And then God causes a worm to come in the east wind and it destroys the gourd. And Jonah has to sit there in the baking sun with the wind blowing in his face. And he's miserable and he's angry. And he's angry at the gourd. And God says, you don't have a right to be angry, Jonah. You don't get it. You don't understand that everything I've been doing is to show you my way. That my way is a heart for people in repentance and forgiveness. That's my way. That's what it's all been about. And God was chastening Jonah from the beginning to the end of the book to show him his way. Not the way to walk physically, but the way to walk spiritually. And God accomplished his purpose in Jonah. That's why the book ends. He accomplished it. He finished it. He finished the task. And thankfully, he's going to do the same thing for us. He's going to keep going until he accomplishes purposes. In whatever purpose he has in your life, he's going to keep going. And so when we pray, whatever is going on, should we be praying for God to remove the burden? Should we be praying for God to remove the illness? Should we be praying for God to uh, take away this, take away that, change my circumstance, make it smoother for me? I say, no, we shouldn't. What we should be praying for is God to accomplish his purpose through it, to hasten his word to perform it, that we look forward to the day of Jesus Christ in that trial, in that tribulation, in that chastisement, 
whatever the case may be. And when we do that, we're not looking, saying, I'm going to be running, I'm going to grin and bear it, I'm going to, I'm going to make it, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to struggle through. No, we think, God is doing something in my life because he loves me, because he cares for me. And even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of tough circumstances, we can sit and, like Paul, rejoice because we know that we're being loved with an everlasting love, a love that accomplishes things from the beginning all the way through to the end, from the first to the last. And he's going to accomplish his word in your life. He's going to bring about the day of Jesus Christ. And he's going to perform everything he starts. Why? Because he loves you with an everlasting love. That's the glory of being a child of God. That's the glory of knowing him. And, know, and, you, and you wonder, how can Paul say that? Because he's not looking to the circumstance. He's not looking to the thorn in the flesh. He's looking to the one who loves him, the one who cares for him. And he knows that his purposes are better than my purposes. He knows that his purposes are, are much clearer than what I want. That although it may feel a lot better not to have the pain, it may be a lot easier if that circumstance were different, God knows that to accomplish his purposes, that's exactly what I need. And when I recognize that, boy, it puts a different light in it. It puts a completely different view on it. And I can live in the light of God's love through the hardest of circumstances when before I would crumble and say, Lord, take it away, Lord, take it away. No, Lord, accomplish what you want to accomplish in me. Accomplish your purposes, just like that almond, just like that beginning all the way through the long summer to the end when the harvest is due. Do that in my life, in the little circumstances and in the big circumstances, just as you're doing it with my salvation. And if you are here today and you don't know that salvation, you don't know Jesus Christ, you're, you are far from him. He's not far from you. Turn to him in faith. Turn to him in repentance. Look to him to remove the vileness of your flesh, the, the sin that easily corrupts you. And he will begin a good work in you. And he'll accomplish it at the day of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's his promise. It's a promise that we can rely upon and we can rejoice in because it's the promise of, what, of, of the name that God gives himself. There, there are many names of God in the scriptures. And a lot of them are names that he allows to be given to him. But there are some special ones that he gives himself. And this is one that he gives himself. I am Alpha and Omega. I am the first and the last. And that is a special promise that he's going to perform exactly what he sets out to do. In each and every child of God. What a glory that is. Because of that, we point you to Jesus Christ today. Amen.